And it was great for me personally, uh, but much more than it was great for me personally was the chance to come together with you, our church family. And it's amazing how God and his plans works out things that we do our best to control far better than we could control them. And so last week we came together at camp and continued our theme of coming together. And it tied right in to our overall theme of the past couple months of identity crisis of who are we in Christ. We are, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, family. And that does dictate how we live and interact with one another. And it was a blessing to have Pastor Ed and Sharon with us. This week we complete uh, our, our series uh, on identity crisis. Now, let me pause and say you're not done. We'll spend the rest of our lives hopefully becoming more and more like Christ each day we live. There will be new struggles. There will be new promises that we need to be reminded of. The promises are always the same in the scriptures, but sometimes we can forget them or lose sight of them. This morning we're going to talk about, as we bring the series back together, probably the biggest struggle I see as I chat with people in the walk of faith. But before we do, we want to celebrate because as you notice, the candle's lit and it's been a great week. Don't cheer yet. Let me tell you the stories. Then we cheer loudly because we know why. Uh, a couple weeks ago, right before uh, the, the camp out at, at Sai Kung, King was able to share Christ, uh, uh, that someone he'd been with on the last GID trip, and they continued in contact with another via email, chatting and whatnot, and she uh, chose to give her life to Christ, the last visit, and that is wonderful. Then... After Alpha this week, uh, Shirley Chung was speaking with one of our Alpha attendees and Shirley kept going and speaking with them. And as her husband said, she just kept going until she, the, the friend understood it. And the friend said, I, I need Jesus and accepted Christ into her life. And we are thrilled to welcome them into the family of God. Now we can cheer. Because, you know, what's so amazing, not just that the angels are rejoicing with us as we celebrate that God has brought new people into the family and that we get the privilege of investing in them and as they grow in their relationship with Jesus, but they are in Christ. And that's where we started this series. We know that we are loved. We know, as Pastor Dan preached so well a couple weeks ago, we are significant. We know God values us. We know in Christ, because of what Christ has done, we have been justified. We have been saved by grace through faith. We know these many promises. But yet, as we looked at that very first week, there are still, for some of us, a barrier that keeps us from truly accepting who we are in Christ. And it's one of the biggest barriers I hear about, and it's called the barrier of regret. Many of us, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, have regrets. And we wish we'd done things differently, or, and I'm going to lump another thing into this that is a little different than regret, we wish others had treated us differently. And that then the world would be different if they had made us better. And so we begin a pattern of self-blame or of other blame that spirals us into I'm not good enough. I can't be who God has created me to be because I'm living in my past. Whether it's my mistake or what has been done to me, it has paralyzed me. It has laid hold of my life. And some of you can think right now, but Mike, you don't understand. I did this. God couldn't possibly love me after that. Or why would a loving God allow this to happen to me? 
How could he do such a thing to me? And on both fronts, we turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Hosea, the first three chapters. The whole book is so rich. But today we're going to look at the initial narrative that tells the story of just what we do with regret, what we do with knowing God is here, but also fully aware that we have sinned. We have missed the mark. We've missed the target. And what do we do when it happens? And God, James Montgomery Boyce says, this is the second most powerful story in the scriptures. God called Hosea, as you heard me tell the kids, to do the most painful of things imaginable. He told Hosea to go find a wife that would cheat on him repeatedly. To go find a wife that would betray him that would not love him is Hosea, a holy man, a righteous man of God. God's chosen prophet was told to go, in essence, marry an unfaithful wife that would be known in some circles as a whore. That was the kind of wife Hosea was to take. Why? Well, you have to look at what was going on in the life of Israel and Judah at this point. The divided kingdom was there. And yet, It was the best of times and the worst of times, as Dickens would say, because in the eyes of themselves, things were okay. Material wealth was enough. They had what they needed. They were comfortable. They'd begun to follow other gods, other Baals. And what they had done in the process was they had lowered their esteem of the one and only true high God and brought him down to the level with their false gods. And they said, God, we don't value you as much. Maybe they didn't say that right out. Most of us wouldn't do that either. If I were to ask you straight on, do you love God? Absolutely. Especially you're never going to tell the pastor no. Not about that. But if I said, well, let's look at your schedule. Tell me what your schedule demonstrates of your love for God. Tell me about your conversations. Tell me about your feelings toward other people. Tell me about your time with the Lord. Tell me about your living in community. Tell me about how you spend your money. Tell me about what you're doing over here. Suddenly, myself included, we might get a little quieter. And we might pull back. Well, Israel had pulled back. They had gotten to a place where they were basically demonstrating, God, we will keep you over here. But it had gotten far worse because Israel, the nation as a whole, Israel and Judah, is God's chosen nation to be light in the world. They had committed spiritual adultery. They had betrayed their first love in such a way that not only hurt God, but communicated false messages to the world around them when they were to be pointing the world to the person of God. They were instead worshiping the same gods as everybody else. And God said, that just can't be. I love you too much to let this continue. So I'm going to show you what it looks like. And I thought, well, how do we show that today? How do we relate to this story? So we're going to watch a video that's painful to watch a little bit, but it gives you the picture of God's love and what it might have been like for Hosea to deal with this. So let's watch together.
can we just get some coffee? Just go up here to the coffee place and grab some. You're gonna leave without saying a word, no goodbye, no nothing. I love you, you know. I do, no matter what, and you need to know that. Yeah, right. What do you mean by that? I don't mean anything by it. Yeah, what are you trying to say by doing that? I'm not trying to say anything. I'm sure you are. For the love of God, Jimmy, what is there to say? I've been cheating on you. You want details? Is that it, details? Please, just go out and grab a cup of coffee. That's all you I'm You really asking. need to stop forgiving me like this, Jimmy. I'm leaving. Lisa. Lisa, please. No, here. Here's your ring. Would you please just take the ring? Come on, Lisa. After all those nights I waited up for you, you can't give me the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee? Jimmy, please. Just a cup. No. A single cup of coffee, that's all I'm asking. What is it with you and the coffee? You make it sound like salvation or something. I don't want coffee. Would you please just take the ring? Why don't you just take it to a pawn shop and hawk it or something? I'm not taking it back. You know, Jimmy, it's not just the infidelity. Your birthday? I wasn't at work like I said I was. I was with somebody else. Somebody else? You know what I mean. That pocket watch I gave you? I didn't have time to go get your gift. So he gave it to me. That was his watch. Maybe you ought to give that back to him. Can't you see what I mean? I tried to be a good wife to you. I did. But there's something wrong with me. I can't do it. And you're a good man, Jimmy. You deserve better than that. I don't want better than that. I want my wife. No, you don't. Yes, I do. <laughs> no, you cannot love this. Nobody can care for this. stupid that I can't see that you're a walking contradiction and why can't I love you it's my heart it's my love I can do with it what I want I can love my mother I can love watching bees suck nectar from a flower and I can love your eyes when they're desperate and lonely like this. It's mine. I'm allowed. And right now, I invest my love in you because that is who I am. I'm your husband. I'm the man who promised you through thick and thin. And if you could feel those words in the way that I mean them right now, you wouldn't question whether I'm capable of loving you or not. You would say no. He loves me that much. I'm only asking for a cup of coffee.
God charged Hosea with the task of going out, finding an adulterous wife, and said, this is my people. But here's the thing. Name your kids scattered, as I told you about. Name your kids not pitied. Nobody's going to look and say, oh, poor Israel at this point. No, people are going to look at you and say, you've done it to yourself. Oh, and one more. Name your last child not my people. The ultimate act of finality it would have felt to the people. And God put that in front of his people through the painful living metaphor of Hosea's life. Hosea being obedient, chasing after Gomer. Look at what God tells him to do in Hosea 1-2. Find yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. You see, we see right off the bat, right as Hosea opens, and Hosea is honest. It's, it was the life God had given to him, and he does not pull punches. He does not hold back. He is powerful in his words, and they're his life. He was living out the metaphor of what Israel had done to her God, to the, to the one that loved her the most. You see running from God, running away to do things our own way, never ends up where we want it to. Sin never achieves the results we hope it will. It always brings us back to emptiness and to adultery, to missing out what God has for us in the loving relationship that is given through his son. And God loved Israel so much that he gave Hosea the prophet the task of representing that love in the most painful of ways. Can you imagine the conversation that must have gone on in Hosea's mind? Thinking, God, are you sure this is really what you want me to do? Why would you do this? God, why me? But Hosea obeyed. And he married Gomer. And as you read the text, it seems he not only married her, But he loved her with a love that only a husband can give. And so the story continues, and we read in verse 10, Yet while Israel has rejected me, while Israel has betrayed me, while Israel has, in the ESV they call it whoredom, while Israel has gone around and cheated on God, yet... The Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey right now, but some of us may feel an awful lot like Gomer or the woman Lisa in the video. We've done too much. There is just things that keep us too far away from God. Too many secrets, too much bitterness, too much hurt, too much wounding. Too many other people have hurt me. I can't possibly come back to God. It's just not going to happen. Yet shortly after God calls Hosea to be a living metaphor of great pain and anguish, He reminds God's people through Hosea of his promises long ago of the Abrahamic covenant. 
Israel will be like the sand on the seashore, too numerous to count. Israel, in the midst of betraying God, saying, look at us, we don't need you, God, was learning that in spite of us, in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of disobedience from his people, God's love was so boundless that he would remain faithful even when Israel and we don't. God's love was so boundless and God is so holy that he says, I don't break my promises. And I told Israel that you will be my people and I will be your God and that is still the case. Can you imagine thinking about that, having to come face to face with the one whom you've betrayed in every way. And God says, the promise is still there. As the man in the video said, I still love you. You're broken, you're hurting. But don't you believe that I still love you? Obviously, when we reject God, we fall into trouble. Most of us in our own personal lives have probably found that to be true in one sense or another. Yet God still invites us back. He doesn't have to. We don't deserve it. That's the great thing. The only thing we bring to salvation is sin. God does all of the rest. Isn't that amazing? We bring a broken, sinful body and say, help, I can't do it. And that's right where we're supposed to be. And God in his infinite love and grace says, let's get to work. Through my son Jesus, I will justify you. You will be seen as righteous once again. The story continues in chapter 2 of Hosea that we find out that Gomer continues on her unfaithful ways as does Israel. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She'll look for them but not find them. Then she'll say, okay, stop there for a second. Picture what's going on. She's looking around for anybody else. If you're in love with someone, or if you're even really good friends with someone, the last thing you want to know is that while they're with you, they're thinking or looking for other people. I watch tea time. I watch our interactions with one another. And sometimes some of us display body language that says we wish we were anywhere else but here. You ever see that? Or in this conversation, you see the person you're trying to have a conversation with and they're looking over there. Well, imagine a period of time when the very people of Israel knew God was right in front of them. Where Hosea, a husband, is right in front of Gomer and she goes out looking everywhere else. It almost sounds like any other guy would have done. I just want what I want. I have needs of my own wants. Sometimes even inside the church, we get to the point where we know that maybe we've done that. We've disobeyed the Lord. We've walked away from him. We've followed a path that was right in man's eyes and missed the path that is right up the middle, the path of God. And we begin to say that that's my identity. I'm a reject. And we begin to believe the lies that Satan tells that no one could love me anymore. I've done too much. 
And, or I don't even get love. Love is fake, so I'm just going to fulfill every carnal, every selfish desire I can because there's no point, because this world isn't enough. And even in those moments, look at verse 8 of chapter 2 of Hosea. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her grain. I was the one who gave the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which she, Gomer, which the people of Israel then used it to worship other gods. You see, what happens here is the old idiom, don't bite the hand that feeds you. If you've ever fed a horse, they will do that sometimes. And it hurts. And you have to get them to understand that you are the one looking after them. You're going to take care of them. And in the case of a horse, it's such a big animal. And when they bite down, it hurts a lot. But when they begin to trust you, their entire countenance changes. I know we don't ride a lot of horses here in Hong Kong. But when the horse trusts its owner, when the horse trusts its rider, it becomes a beautifully gallant animal that goes and is quite obedient, actually, for the most part, when they're trained, when they've chosen to submit to the will of the owner. They become a joy to follow. Just as what we see here in that verse. She's not acknowledged that I've the one that's provided. I am enough. In the New Testament, what does that look like? Well, it's told to us very simply that God's grace is sufficient My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I was speaking somewhere else yesterday, and we were discussing the idea, what do you do when you don't understand the world around you? For instance, we live in a very globalized society. But honestly, megacities like Hong Kong, uh, wherever else you might be from, if you're from a large city, often megacities are known to be the loneliest places on earth. Because everyone gets so caught up in their own stuff that they think no one else would have time for them. And we see it happen all the time. Walk through a busy street. Everyone's just looking their own way. What happens if we slowed down and met with people where they are? God, in verse 8, reminds us through the words of Hosea, I've been the one providing for you the whole time. In the movie Back to the Future, there's a character that knocks on Marty McFly's head. And helps him remember by doing a very visual reminder. Some of you that know the Back to the Future movies remember, Hello, McFly, is anybody in there? Sometimes God needs to do that with us. Do you remember I'm the one providing for you? Do you remember I'm the one that has made this entire world? I am the one that said, this is my creation and it is good. I am the one that said, behold, you are my workmanship. I am the one that has loved you all along. And my grace is sufficient even in your ultimate weakness, your sin, your brokenness, your betrayal, your hurt, your wounds that others have placed upon you. I can't imagine what it must be like for a woman that has been raped to deal with the pain and the suffering of knowing what someone has taken from her. But I've read and I've heard women speak of just such a topic where they said the only thing that got them through was when they encountered the loving God that says, my grace is sufficient. I 
am all you need. I did not leave you, nor did I forsake you, even in your moment of great pain. But see what happens when the regret creeps in, when we fall into patterns of rejection, whether it's self-rejection or rejection of God. We believe that we have to clean ourselves up, that we've got to fix it. And we can't. And so we need a better way because the wounds we carry around are much like uh, John Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress. They just weigh us down and they weigh us lower and lower and lower till we can't possibly make it another step. And you might have found yourself like that right now. You need help, but you don't know where to turn. The regret is so big, the secrets are so huge, or they're so small, but you think no one would understand. There's got to be a plan. There's got to be a better way than holding that in and shouldering it yourself. And God says, oh, there is. He says, all those names you gave your children, I'm going to give them new names. You, Israel, will get a new name. You'll no longer... Oh, that's the wrong verse. Sorry, you got to go down to 19 and 20. I missed a passage. We'll go on. In 19 and 20, Hosea is told to say this, that I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Isn't that amazing that we see that in the midst of that, Hosea is saying, I'm still your husband to Gomer. That was the verse I showed, 16. And you will come back, declares the Lord. Verse 16, you will no longer call me master, but we are family. 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. And betrothal is a process that we in Western culture might not understand as well, but it wasn't just getting engaged. You know, getting engaged, we've almost made a very risk-free venture. There's lots of ways out for it. Betrothal is much more like the system that you find throughout the scripture where there was, a, there was an arranged marriage component to it. And I don't completely understand arranged marriage. I am all for it. Uh, and I think it would make the stress of high school a lot easier for me, a parent of two children, of two girls. But however, in the very serious sense, betrothal meant not just getting engaged, but an actual paying the price for the right to bring that female into the family. If you go back and look at the Hebrew concept there, betrothal was way bigger than, hey, will you marry me? It was a serious part of the covenant of marriage. And get this, it had a price. It wasn't free. It wasn't just like that. There was a price. God says that to his people. I'm coming after you. I love you and I will pay the price. You are my betrothed and I love you. God's love is a pursuing love. Whether we come back or not, he keeps on loving us. And I think sometimes we forget that. And so that's why when you get to Hosea 3.1, it just gets amazing. Because listen to this. He says, go show your love to your wife again. She's cheated on you. She's betrayed you. And I almost feel like God kind of says to Hosea, but that's nothing like what Israel has done to me. So you go show my love. Go show your life, love to your wife again. 
though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods, love the sacred raisin cakes, love all the sweetness of the sinful life. Go show this land what real love is. And so what does Hosea do? He goes out and buys his wife back. Can you think about that for a second? He goes out and he pays essentially what was the cost of a slave to buy his own wife that had said, I will marry you, that had gone through the process and he buys her back. Did she deserve it? No way. Not a single one of us in this room would say, go Gomer. She is not the hero in this story. She's us. And Hosea goes out and he gets her. And he goes to this master. How do you think that conversation's going to go? Hey, uh, how you doing, Bob? Good. My name's Hosea. Uh, you, you know Gomer? Yeah, yeah, I know Gomer. I like her a lot. You know, she's inside. Well, yeah, she's my wife. Well, you can't have her back. She's mine now. But she's my wife. Well, she doesn't love you anymore. She wants nothing to do with you. She tells me that all the time. I know. But I want her back. I love her. And I'll pay for it. And with that, Hosea pays the price to bring his wife home. And then he looks at her and he says, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute. Quit sleeping around or be intimate with another man. And I will behave the same way toward you. I will be faithful to you. You should be faithful to me. And the broader application is we, God's people, have been welcomed back into the fold. It's called grace. And it's amazing. And it's astounding. Hosea paid the price. He modeled an unconditional love that only God can give. And as you jump into the New Testament, when Paul tells us that the church is to be the very bride of Christ. We sometimes forget there was a betrothal cost. There was a cost to buy us back from the life of sin that has so entangled and and interwoven our lives. And that cost was the very life of the groom. He gave himself up. He gave himself as a ransom for many that we might turn back to him and live with him for all eternity and be faithful to him because you know what? He is always faithful to us. I had to share a bit of my testimony yesterday at the conference I was speaking at. And somebody asked me a question. They said, well, how'd you end up being a pastor? And I said, well, I was a pastor's kid. And I said, as a pastor's kid, I swore I would never be a pastor because I... Don't laugh because I saw how mean people could be in the name of Jesus. And I made it my mission to want to do everything outside the church I could to let people know that God isn't like what a lot of the church shows it's like. But somewhere over time, as I fell more and more in love with the scriptures, I realized that God's chosen mouthpiece for the world is the church. And I realized that I was called to be inside the church trying to tell everyone I could that Jesus loves us and tells us to bring everyone to come together in him. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. And we can't possibly bring anything but brokenness and sin. And he loves us.
And he says, as we see in the prodigal son, he will run to us. He pursues us. He redeems us and he restores us. And you know the other thing he does? God's got a habit of renaming people, doesn't he? So you've got regret in your life. So you've allowed that to, to, to identify you for a long time. Your identity is wrapped up in what others have done to you or what you have done to others. Might be time for a new name. Abram was given the name Abraham. Saul was given the name Paul. There are so many examples of God changing names to point out. Peter became, or he became Peter. Simon became Peter, the rock. I'll build my church. God redeems us and keeps on working us. And sometimes we just need the new name and we just need to understand the reality of the truth that he will show his love to even those that have said, I don't love you. We'll come back, but he'll bring us back. We can't do it on our own. He changes our names. He says, you once were a scattered people. Now you are my people. You once were not pitied. Now you are loved. You once were not people. Now we will say to him, you are my God. And he will say, you are my people. How do we know this to be true? Because as God renames us, he makes something beautiful out of the mess we've made of our own lives. How do I know this? Look at the scriptures. You are God's workmanship created just as he planned to do good works in his name. He can heal you. He can set you free from the addiction to pornography that no one knows about. He can free you from alcohol. He can free you from workaholism. He can set you free from the betrayal of others upon your life. He says, here I am. I can make a beautiful life out of the mess you've brought me. Because I am the potter. You're just the clay. And God, as you see throughout scripture, is an artist that creates the most magnificent of masterpieces. That when we get the new name tag, you know what it says? We're his. We are not our own anymore. In Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. And regardless of what our past has said about us, we are now his children adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God, if we but believe in Jesus Christ and say, I can't save myself. This is yours. My life is yours. Can we do that? Can we say, I'm not defined by my past, but my God is gracious. I'm his. Or do we get caught marking everyone else for all they've done wrong? Do we get caught running away from God on our own because we think we've got to fix ourselves before we're good enough to approach God? God loved the people of Israel, the people of Judah, so much that he sent Hosea to live out the most painful of testimonies, to marry an adulterous wife and to bring her back at great expense to himself personally. God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, to to come, to live the sinless life, he who knew no sin, 
to go before, to pay the penalty for our sins, to pay the price to grab his bride, to betroth us, that when he restores, we will be glorified. We will be all new. This sinful world we live in will be completely renewed, redeemed, restored, and refreshed. And we who are in Christ, we who have said, God, my life is yours. I believe Jesus Christ is the only way to you, and I will follow you. We are his. The old has gone. The new has come. I don't know where you are, but we've got some bookmarks for you that are a reminder of this series today. They're a reminder of the grace of God. And at the end of the service, we're going to pass them out. But I pray that no matter what comes in your life, you can remember you are God's, that he loves you. You are his beloved. You are beautiful. You are his Your delight is in him. God has a plan for you. You are treasured. In Christ, you are clean. These are all in Christ statements. In Christ, you are a co-heir with him. You are complete. And you are forgiven. We can't erase our past. But we can live in the grace that God offers. And then we can give that same grace away to those desperately in need of it. You know why I didn't want to be a pastor? Because as I watched people in church, I felt like they really liked grace. They just didn't want to give any of it away. May we at Alliance International Church freely give the grace of God away, no matter how much that person is struggling. I don't care how dirty they are. They are God's child. Invite them to know him. Let's pray. Lord, I can't imagine what life was like for Hosea. But as he obeyed, you redeemed Gomer and you showed us a wonderful picture of your great love that you can make beautiful things out of the mess we've made of our life. Set us free. Help us to live by grace and to give it away freely. We pray, amen.